Welcome back to Outside the System. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Svetsky, a longtime Bitcoiner and the founder of the Bitcoin Times. While our conversation largely centered on Bitcoin, we spent most of the time talking about related ideas, like mass adoption and why Alex believes it will take three generations to get there. Merchant tools, Bitcoin circular economy, time preference, and much more were discussed. Alex has done a lot of thinking and writing about these topics, and you can find links to all of his content in the show notes. If you're enjoying Outside the System, a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts is super helpful in helping to spread the word. And of course, if you're getting value from the show, you can support us financially using Bitcoin on Fountain or any other podcast player that supports podcasting 2.0. Let's get into the episode. Alex, thanks for coming on Outside the System today. Thank you, brother. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I've been uh, following you for a while, looking at your work. I know you're kind of legendary on uh, Twitter, Bitcoin circles. Oh, good. Uh, but yeah, uh, so maybe maybe the best place to start is just kind of introduction on yourself, the kinds of things that you're working on, um, what you've been doing, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. I have I have so many topics I want to to talk to you about. For sure, man. Um... So, so do you want me to give some background or do you want me to... Yeah, talk? yeah. Just some background on you, like what you've been working on, uh, what you've done and, and yeah, what what uh, what people should know about you. Yeah, um, I think most people probably know me from a, from a content uh, creation standpoint. Um, and it's funny because I've never really been a content creator. Um, it just sort of happened in Bitcoin because I started ranting on Medium, actually. So, so I mean, I've always written for myself, but uh, I, never, I never wrote in public and... Um, and it was really around the time I discovered Bitcoin. I just started writing some other stuff on Medium um, for, and I don't even, I can't even remember what my, what my motivation was back then when I when I started. Honestly, um, I always thought like you know putting your uh, ideas out in public was a bit weird and dorky. Um, you know that's why I never really had mm-hmm. social media. Like I never got onto Twitter until like 2018, 2019. Um, and anyway, yes, for some reason I did. And then, you know, I got sort of captured by, uh, Bitcoin and sort of everything that's important about it. And, you know, alongside, uh, setting up a company there, because that was how I thought I was going to really impact the space. Right. So I set up the world's first Bitcoin only dollar cost averaging app, um, called Amber. And, you know, it inspired a whole wave of these things like, you know, Swan and river and everything. And, and it's funny, like, you know, now we have, Bitcoin only VCs, you know, Bitcoin only companies, Bitcoin only accelerators. Like we have all this cool shit that's come up. But back then, like running a Bitcoin only company was like, bro, what the fuck's wrong with you? Like, don't, don't you know, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain, you know, like that's where all the money was. So it was crazy. Um, but yeah, like I was, I set up that company and I just did a bunch of writing. So mo- most people know me probably more from writing than from entrepreneurial stuff. But that that's really been more my uh my history, my life, uh, and experience. And, um, and anyway, I, I sort of stepped away from, um, the entrepreneurial thing about 18 months ago, roughly. Um, because I had a, let's just say I had a disagreement with the regulators back home in Australia. Um, and I thought the best thing for me was to just move away from that stuff. You know, I don't want to build a company that's about complying. Um, and I'm not a very compliant person either. So yeah, I, I actually went and tried and double down on the content stuff. So I, I wrote the uncommunist manifesto with Mark Moss, which, which did 
pretty well. Like it, you know, it got out there. We got it into some circles, um, and I think that yep. was great. And um, I did the Bitcoin Times, which basically was something that I was doing as like a little side hobby for a number of years, and um, and then I kind of formalized it with the Austrian edition last year. Um, had like Saifedean, Pierre. I got Michael Goldstein out of hibernation to write his first piece in years, um, and it was fantastic. Uh, and I and I finally printed out the first versions of it as a collectible. So there's like uh, 2100 of each edition that'll ever be printed, um, and they're uniquely numbered on the back and yada yada yada. So I did that, um, and I'm just about uh, I'm sort of 30% of the way through editing um, my next book, which is called The Bushido of Bitcoin, and that's uh, you know we'll, we'll touch on that during the conversation. And um, and yeah, now I'm sort of helping out a couple of Bitcoin companies, um, one in particular called Lucent Labs out of Austin, um, and I'm working on a little uh, generative AI um, kind of like side hustle um, on the side. So yeah, lot, lots going on, bro. Lots going on. Um, actually, on your so with your uh, for company Amber, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned staying Bitcoin only in, in that era, which, you know, I remember it was probably insane to be considered uh, Bitcoin only at that time, even though I think in hindsight, now everyone says, oh, it's so obvious. Right. But at the time there was mm-hmm. it, it was really hard. How like I guess how did you go about doing that? Because I think there's so many people in the Bitcoin space, uh, particularly not everyone, obviously, some people were able to kind of stay true and, and, and stay to only Bitcoin. But I think there's, you know, money is very hard for people to turn down. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you look at that decision? I'm sure people had kind of come to you and been like, well, what about all the other, you know, what we would now call shit coins? Uh, why can't I buy through your app? Man, we, we were always on the, um, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're always battling that, right? Yep. It's, um, you know, I had the Dash Foundation offer me a lot of money to, to list Dash and make it like a Dash app. You know, speaking with the Ethereum guys, consensus and stuff like that, uh, and you know, in, uh, originally the app almost was a it was a Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? But I don't know, man. There was always a part of me which was like, "Fuck, why am I doing this?" And I always came back to the the sort of idea. It's like, well, I'm trying to solve a problem, and the problem is that global savings is broken, um, and you know, Bitcoin's the only thing that actually solves this um like i wanted to do it because i because i gave a fuck um and yeah man um in the end i just sort of stuck with that and the more the more i went down the rabbit hole obviously the more of a maxi i became um and the more of a maxi i became then the easier it was to to do that but in the early days you know i was particularly when money was hard to find fuck man like I, i was seriously considering it um because we were broke. We had no money. Like in the first, in the first six months of raising capital, everyone was laughing at me because I didn't have an IC, uh, I didn't have a token, and we weren't doing an ICO. They're like, "What? Well, why aren't you doing a token?" I'm like, well, "Right." Because I'm selling fucking equity, bro. Like you're actually getting a piece of a company, not a promise of vaporware. And they're right. like, yeah, "But we want a token." I was like, "Fuck <laughs> me!" And then in the second six months. You know, Bitcoin had fucking tanked, and it was all over, and you know, it was three thousand dollars, and then everyone was laughing at me like what are you talking about? Didn't you know Bitcoin's dead? Like it's, it's blockchain that we're interested in the underlying technology. I was like, Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> this, this brings up a really good point, right? That, and you've, you've mentioned this before in your writing, but Bitcoin is sure it's a technology, but not just a technology. Uh, it's really, I mean, so much, so much more than that. I mean, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that probably ties into your, 
I'm guessing your motivation and your kind of becoming a maxi in general, right? Is because I've, I've noticed that for myself as well. It's the more you look at this stuff, it's, you know, you come into it, you think, you know, everybody comes into it from a different angle, but I, I know when I first heard about it, it was more from people in tech and I'm in tech as well. And so it's just learning about it through that perspective. But as you go down the rabbit hole, you're like, you know, you start looking at sound money and, you know, all the things that kind of come along with that and the fiat world, and you just start seeing, uh, just, you, it's, it's endless. It's endless once you start mm -hmm. going into the rabbit hole. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Like, so, so I've always been a curious, uh, person, right. And I, and I think a lot of Bitcoiners, you know, fundamentally are, and I guess you need to have a predisposition for asking larger questions. And, um, and that was sort of, I think what captivated, captivated me about Bitcoin is the, the more I dug, the more I realized, holy shit, you know, money, money is pretty fucking foundational. Um, and if you, if you, if that's not functional, like you get basically like deviations and distortions and everything downstream. Um, so the more you sort of dig into that idea, the more you realize um, how profound something like Bitcoin is. And then you obviously find all the, the million different sort of analogies and parallels with like, with energy, with time, you know, with, uh, you know, Austrian economics and, and all this sort of other shit. And, you know, you, you get to the point where, you know, it blows your mind so many times that you're like, holy fuck, this is, this is huge. Um, and I think you've also got to have some sort of, um, leaning towards, uh, I don't know, doing what's right. Um, and like, you know, probably placing integrity and honor above, um, above money or something like that, because, yeah. you know, Bitcoin is, you know, it's sort of like the boring straight and narrow path. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've asked myself multiple times, I'm like, fuck, maybe I should have just like rolled a shit coin, printed a bunch of money out of thin air. I'd be sitting on a fat stack, you know, I would have swapped it to Bitcoin knowing that Bitcoin's a better thing to do anyway. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't have had all the stress, all the head, headache and everything like that. But then I sort of, uh, you know, think, well, you know, I, I actually built character in this process. Um, and I think that counts for more like that. There's, there's stuff that's immaterial um, that matters in life that we kind of disregard and we end up trading for uh, material gain. Um, and I think that's, that, that's a, that's a larger problem in civilization today and something I try and tackle in the Bushido of Bitcoin. But um yeah. Anyway, I think I think you need to have you know some certain predispositions to to avoid that to sort of really grasp Bitcoin and then sort of stick with Bitcoin. Um, right. And you know, that, that's a you know it's a not a lot of people like that. I think. Yeah, and I think you've. I mean, this comes through in your writing, and I think in in some other people I've also read uh, talk about this where. Uh, you're kind of looking at Bitcoin through a much more long. Uh, long, long time horizon lens, right? You're not looking at, hey, what is Bitcoin going to do in terms of price in the next six months? That's not the game that I think people who've really bought into the Bitcoin philosophy and, you know, just uh, just Bitcoin. I, when I say Bitcoin philosophy, I actually should just say Bitcoin. It's not really any kind of extra philosophy. It's just if you understand and believe in kind of what Bitcoin represents, uh, there are certain principles that kind of go along with that. And so you've written... Uh, recently, actually, there was an article you wrote about this three generation theory, and mm -hmm. you say Bitcoin is going to reach mass adoption in, you know, kind of roughly 2069. And, and the way you got 
got to that number is a generation is roughly 20 years. Uh, Bitcoin kind of started in 2009. So 2009 to 2029, that's generation one. Generation two is to 2049. Generation three is to 2069. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that a little bit? Because I, I think there's some people might look at 2069 and say, wow, that's so pessimistic. If it's going to take that long to mass adoption, you know, we're screwed. Um, and other people might say, wow, you're crazy. Mass adoption will never happen. So just kind of talk about how you got that, to that number and, and kind of what you mean by this three generation theory. Yeah, I think I think I'd try and lay it out at the beginning of the article and just say, look, Bitcoin is, is quit. Um projecting technological adoption curves onto Bitcoin because it's so much more like the, the very nature of um, money is being changed and, and money forms the basis of, uh, you know, all of civilization, like trying to swap it out uh, and change the very fabric of society is like, it's, it's a fucking long process. It's a, it's a full paradigm shift. Like Bitcoin is incompatible with, um, with anything that came before it. Right. Like, you know, Bitcoin operates on UTXO sets and um, and public uh, public private key pairs and addresses, right? Like the everything else that we've conceptualized in the past operates off like account uh, account numbers um, and you know double ledger accounting and all that sort of stuff. Um, so like we we like that kind of a shift is cultural. It is. Um, it is political, it is social, uh, it is uh, structural um, to, to the very, like, I don't know, to, to the very substrate of how uh, civilization operates. Um, and if you think people are all of a sudden going to change, like, you know, h- how they view money, like, let me give you an example. Um, I'm, it, it, this is hard to explain because it's um, what, what I'm trying to reinforce is like how big this thing is. It's I, I've been to 40 countries in the last couple of years. Um, and whenever I talk to people about Bitcoin, generally the first thing is um, they say one, one of two things. It's, oh, yeah, I've invested in that. Or no, I haven't invested in that. It's too expensive, right? And mm-hmm. either option shows you where Bitcoin actually is uh, in the cycle. It's like have you ever heard someone say yeah, i invest in us dollars no no like or i invest in euros like no that, that, that's not what they fucking do so so that they don't even know that it's fucking money like bitcoin is perceived as some sort of speculative instrument um yeah now that's treating it like a stock or something like that correct you know people people still perceive it's like oh you know can i buy shares in bitcoin it's like well, probably it's not a company <laughs> you know but that but yeah. <laughs> That's going to take a long time to shift. And, you know, prior generations are just not going to get it. So so my whole argument is that it's going to require, you know, the the boomers basically to die off and probably us to die off as well, honestly, um, before, you know, the paradigm fully shifts. And each generation is just going to fundamentally bring with it a new, um, a new understanding uh, or new view of Bitcoin, right? So imagine, yeah. you know, us being the first generation, like where the – we're the infection stage, like, you know, Bitcoin's sort of getting in there and it's forming a, you know, a, a virus and host symbiosis. Um, and, you know, to do that, you, you know, the virus needs to enter uh, relatively uninhibited and unnoticed, which it did, you know, um, it needs to kind of grab a foothold uh, into the system, which it did with, um, with uh, uh, what do you call it, S- Silk Road, um, and sort of prove, you know, usefulness of something um, within the host. Um, and then it's got a 
you know, modern society is fundamentally an economic beast. So what does it need to do? Bitcoin needs to become an economic thing in order to really intertwine with the host. And that's what it's been doing for the last, uh, you know, largely 10 years really now. Um, and, you know, it was originally just pure fucking degenerate gambling. And it inspired more degenerate gambling. But then within that degenerate gambling sort of space, it became the reserve asset within crypto, right? And then, you know, another couple of years, you sort of had a guy called Michael Saylor come out and, you know, say that he's putting it on, in, on his balance sheet. So it became, you know, a a reserve asset with a with a higher degree of uh, trust. Now, by, by no means is it a, a broad reserve asset. <laughs> like, you know, most people, as I said, still view it as a speculative thing, which is why it still trades risk on. Um, but you know, it's it's sort of maturing and evolving through these through these stages. So in this infection stage, it's going to be primarily viewed uh, as a speculative thing until there's enough liquidity um, and a decreased enough volatility for that perception to change. Coupled with a new generation that comes in, that are the entrepreneurs, build and builders of the um, of the new generation. So. Um, so, you know, imagine, imagine the kids that sort of come 20, 30 and beyond, like they're going to be 20, 21 years old, etc., coming of age, being entrepreneurs and, you know, career people, etc., building stuff. They're, they're not going to know, first of all, of a year of an age before Bitcoin, because they were born with Bitcoin. Um, but then also they, they will have come, they will have hit that age where they're prone to speculation and stuff like that. When Bitcoin's, you know, two orders of magnitude, probably larger, in price and liquidity than we are now, which will come with a dampening of um, of volatility. So, like, imagine Bitcoin right. is like a couple million dollars or whatever um, in twenty thirty. You got sense at parity at that point. Like, Bitcoin's movements will just fundamentally not be as wild. That that just happens with maturity and it happens with liquidity. So they they won't view Bitcoin as the same speculative uh, instrument that we you know as we do because it will have transformed into something else. So they'll they'll view it more as a tool. And because it's superior in so many ways, and because they, you know, these young minds will not have been infected the same way as we have with like understanding economics and accounting and finance and everything through old primitives, they'll view like UTXO sets, you know, uh, ten-minute blocks, you know, transparent ledger, all this sort of stuff, like as better primitives upon which they can build better infrastructure, and that that's what they'll go and do. They'll go and build new fucking infrastructure that um that makes more sense and that leverages. Uh, this um, this technology essentially, or this uh, this new socioeconomic, uh, you know, substrate, and they'll go and do that. Um, they'll get a lot of pushback. There'll be a lot of competition because obviously the state is going to be building its own set of primitives, and Silicon Valley will be building their own. China will be building their own. Africa will. Be, everyone's going to be building their own. But you'll have you know a whole cohort building on and around Bitcoin, um, you know, and building better, sounder, more useful infrastructure. Um, you know, and that'll run the course. And then we get to sort of the generation that comes of age, you know, 2050 and beyond, which is our children's children. Um, and they will definitely not know of an age um, before Bitcoin. Like for them, like that's all there is. And for them, you'll have, you know, obviously, you know, Bitcoin by that stage might be another couple orders of magnitude larger. Um, you know, the concept of Bitcoin will even be foreign. Like for them, it'll be dealing with sats basically. Like that's, you know, we'll probably have, dollar sat parity um and for them like the, the utility phase comes in you know you have then infrastructure 
uh, and utility. It becomes much more about what you can do. Exactly. And then, and then, you know, you sort of picture that world, you know, that world might be one in which, you know, Bitcoin's competing with, you know, different CBDCs and maybe like, you know, small Ethereum land or something like that. And, you know, fucking China coin or whatever. Um, and that one will be where the showdown sort of occurs with respect to what's better global fucking money. Um, but we, we ain't getting to global money with Bitcoin before that. Like it's going to, you know, th- yeah. that, fight that. Yeah, that battle is probably not for our time. Uh, we're in a different phase of the process. Totally, totally. There's a, a famous quote, which you're probably familiar with, um, by Max Planck about science advancing one funeral at a time. Mm. Um, mm. And there's a follow-up to it, which I just looked up, which uh, actually is just as relevant to what you're talking about, where he said, in addition to the science advances one funeral at a time, he said, a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. Perfect. I wish I put that in the article because that's like literally what I was thinking. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so true. It's like, um, I mean, this is a, 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 you know, personal anecdote, but I am going to, um, to your point about going, you know, visiting different countries. I'm visiting, uh, Kenya in the, in the summer and I'm doing a safari. And so I just had to send money to the person who's, you know, booking the safari and it, they were doing wire transfer. And it's like, they could save themselves fees. I could save myself fees if we just all used Bitcoin, but, uh, you know, they're not familiar with it, but probably, you know, someone doing this in 20 years or 10 years might say, you know, somebody, you know, another person who's doing the safaris may say, okay, well, I can just accept Bitcoin for this, not pay the fees on my side. Um, and to your point about infrastructure, maybe there's a tool that they can actually accept Bitcoin without me having to pay Bitcoin. Uh, and it just does a conversion in the back end and, and uh, kind of makes it much more frictionless for them. But I think merchants, you know, there's two things about Bitcoin that I think are good for merchant adoption. And I've done a lot of like merchant work in previous jobs that I've had on, on the tech side. Um, this is like many years ago, but uh, two, two features of Bitcoin that I think are super valuable for merchants. One, uh, the, the lack of fees, right? So I think about credit cards and uh, wire transfers, all these things have fees. And most consumers don't realize that merchants are the ones paying those fees on their end um, to accept your, your credit card payment or your fiat payment. Um, and then the second thing is the instant settlement. You know, like if you send an invoice, you know, through Stripe or something, there's a, a settlement process, which takes, you know, can take several days, can take even longer. Uh, mm-hmm. You use Lightning or use Bitcoin, you're just reliant on, uh, you know, a few minutes, basically. you got settlement and you can use those funds. Totally, totally. I mean, there. Um, that that reminds me of like what we're trying to do at Lucent Labs. So I recently joined an Austin, um, an Austin startup called Lucent Labs, and um, and people can look it up on Twitter. Labs with a Z at the end. And the mission there is to basically build out a suite of tools uh, to help businesses onboard onto Bitcoin. Um, and you know, th- there's a million Bitcoin tools out there at the moment. But what what I think is lacking. And what what intrigued me about these guys was most business owners don't have the time to sit down and watch a fucking YouTube uh, clip about how to set up a node or a wallet and where. <laughs> yeah, you ain't gonna do that. No way. Second of all, if someone you know off the street comes you know into their establishment and says, "Hey, I'll set you up on Bitcoin. I'll do it for free." Blah blah. 
they, they don't appreciate that. They're like, they, they sort of automatically red flags go up, something sketchy is going on, etc. right? But if they've got an organization they can call that's a professional at onboarding onto Bitcoin, um, that can help give them, you know, a Bitcoin operations framework. Um, so another thing that Lucent's working on is called the BitOps framework. Um, so they help them get onboarded, handle it all, and then give them, you know, a framework within which to operate um, and, you know, either manage treasury payments, you know, whatever they want that helps enhance their fucking business because people want to know how can this help my business and how can this increase my bottom line? How can this lower friction, right? Um, do that and then have someone that can be on call when, you know, the business needs a bit of a assistance and like, I want to add this, I want to do this, I want to change this, this broke or whatever, right? That doesn't exist at the moment, at least not to a decent degree, right? There's like random consulting things going around and stuff like that. So anyway, like this is how we get merchant adoption. Like we, we provide them something professional uh, that they can like, because once again, you know, we talk about Bitcoin trustlessness, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sorry, the world operates on trust. Trust is a, you know, 100,000 year old primitive. It's not going away tomorrow. Just, um, you know, someone wrote a program that is trustless. Like the fact is, People like ninety nine point nine percent of people don't understand the white paper anyway, and ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people don't understand the Bitcoin code. So it's never going to be trustless. Um, they're just going to trust someone who understands something better than they do. So we just build new pyramids of trust, right? Um, of course, of course. And I think the 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 like parallel is, I mean, how many people understand understand how central banking works? It's mm, not mm. very many, right? And you don't need to understand it to use. US dollars or, or the euro or anything like that, you know, you just use the money. And uh, I think with Bitcoin, we need to get to a point, And I think to your point of how far away mass adoption is, you shouldn't need to understand that to, to use the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, just making it more simple. And to your point about merchants, I mean, yeah, they're very like a small business owner, whether they operate a coffee shop or, or something else, you know, the demands on their time are, are pretty high. And uh, you're right. They're not going to spend their time trying to set up a node or something like that. They, but they would, to be fair, they also wouldn't, you know, watch a YouTube video on how to set up a credit card terminal. They trust a company like Square or Visa or whoever to uh, help them set that up. Um, your one one question going back to the three generation theory, you mentioned kind of in the third phase is where kind of the real showdown happens, probably between CBDCs, Bitcoin, and you know, kind of some of the alternatives. Um, Thinking about kind of even getting to that phase, you know, what are, and this is, and if this is kind of outside the scope of, of what you've thought about, you know, we can skip over this question, but it's something I've been kind of thinking a little bit more about these days is how would the state fight back against kind of losing the monetary monopoly? Because um, it's probably one of, it's probably, if not their biggest, one of their top two, probably, I would actually say their biggest tool right now, you know, because everything is kind of downstream of that. It can't really fund the defense infrastructure and the, or the attack infrastructure um, without without the fiat money that they rely on. So I, it, to me, it feels like, you know, they're not going to let go of that easily. Well, they're not. And, and I mean, it's a different fight at, um, at a different stage, right? So and this is sort of why it's really important for the for the infection stage to play out and the infection stage to play out. Bitcoin needs to find that symbiosis with the host and, you know, be an economic beast that the, the host itself sees relevance in protecting, right? Until such time that the, the virus is um, too integral 
to it that in order to kill it, the host kills itself, right? Um, and and that sort of I think we're right in the fucking guts of that right now, right? Bitcoin is probably too economically important to kill, um, but simultaneously too complicated to kill um, without the host damaging itself to a significant degree, right? Um, may, maybe we're not, you know, at that point yet, but we're probably close or perhaps we've passed it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, like the, the whole, there seems to be some shenanigans, you know, with the shutting down of, uh, you know, Silvergate and, um, and Signature, yep. et cetera. So there seems to be some stuff, um, you know, we saw, we saw the dum-dums in China, like try and, you know, hit it with a hammer by, you know, banning mining and all that sort of stuff, you know so much for that china's banned bitcoin you know dozens of times now so (laughs) so so like their their strategies are pretty like proving to be pretty uh impotent right um but you know they're gonna you know never underestimate and and never underestimate your enemy right like every time they fail they'll think of something else um yep they'll you know they'll find another potential weakness now I, i i don't know like what future attacks will look like and how, you know, violent and ugly it'll get, you know, whether, whether, you know, the attacks turn more against Bitcoiners themselves um, or whether the system itself starts to break up to such a degree, which is, you know, like we saw over the last couple of years, how little brain cells the lemmings have, right. Um, you know, yeah. the, the average person. And, and you still see it like this motherfucker still wearing masks out on the street, like walking around. <laughs> Like I, I just be beyond comprehension for me when I see that I'm like, like, do, I, I, you know, is there an entity inside there? Like, are it's you mind boggling? Yeah. Like th- th- people like that have agency, right? So, so those people think, think about what's going to happen with those people when, because the government printed a bunch of money, because they just bailed out another bank because of all this sort of stuff. Um, the, like, Unbeknownst to them, the price of food is going to go up, the price of gas is going to go up, the price of power is going to go up, the price of everything is going to go up. Who do you think they're going to blame? Do you think they're going to blame the the um, the government? No, they can't do. You know, usually they're government cucks, so they're probably going to blame the people that are you know getting rich, at least in their eyes, and that's most yep. likely going to be Bitcoiners because we were smart enough to preserve our purchasing power by moving out of other stuff into Bitcoin. So maybe. You know, the government doesn't need to attack us directly, but we become a scapegoat. And maybe that's a future attack vector, right? Um, and maybe that's something that our children and children's children are going to need to worry about um, as the wheels sort of fall off the legacy system. So, you know, warfare is going to change big time. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think so that's an interesting um, segue, the, you know, the kind of the, the mask conversation and, and some of the state fighting back. I think you're just one last note on that is you're starting to see to your point about Silvergate and some of the other things that have happened in the last few weeks, they're trying to take off. It's, it appears at least the off, you know, the on and off ramps uh, from fiat to, to Bitcoin, or at least make those harder or choke them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I almost wonder how that's going to, kind of incentivize actually creating more of a Bitcoin economy, right? If it's harder to get sats on and off, then it's, okay, what can I just buy with my Bitcoin instead of converting my Bitcoin to fiat to actually spend it? Uh, 
I mean, in some ways they're almost going to like, to your point about a virus, this almost helps the virus replicate faster. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, most of the time, this is sort of, if you're familiar with the Cobra effect, right? Like most of the time, these idiots um, shoot themselves in the foot, which is, um, do you want to tell you what the Cobra effect is? Or do you know what it is? Yeah. I don't know what it is. No. I would, yeah. I'd love, love for you to explain that. So, so, you know, when the Brits sort of took over India and stuff like that, there was, uh, you know, the, I think it was in the 1800s or something there was uh, too many cobras out in the streets so they put out a um you know they're like okay how do we fix this all right let's um put out a bounty you know everyone who um you know kills a cobra and brings in a head uh, gets paid and this will get rid of the cobra problem so they did that you know and people started to you know kill the cobras bring them in but then you know some people were like you know what fucking i'm gonna breed cobras and then just chop the heads off and bring them in so all of a sudden, there was all these cobras coming in, and they were like, "Well, fuck me! Now we've you know just incentivized the wrong thing." So then they cut the incentive off. So then all these people that were breeding cobras, they're like, "Well, fuck! Now I don't need cobras, so they let them go." So now what ended up happening? They had ten times more cobras than what they started with. <laughs> so this is um, wow. that's the perpetual problem of government, right? Every time they try and fix a problem, they put their foot up and make it ten times worse, and that backfires on them, you know, all the time. And you know, if like. You know, another sort of thing from Sun Tzu, right? It's like, don't interrupt your enemy while they're defeating themselves. And and that's sort of the position we're in, is like, the, the government's going to continue to do shit that'll, you know, play into our hand. Um, and we just need to stay steady. And this is where I sometimes get pissed off with like the core devs and, you know, everyone trying to like fucking do drive chains and tarot and this and that. It's like, man, we don't need to like, Bitcoin's a string. You don't push it. Bitcoin gets pulled uh, into the um, the Overton window by virtue of the fact that the paradigm we're living in is so fucking broken and retarded. Like you don't have to, you know, impose, uh, you don't have to add new features and do all this sort of shit to Bitcoin um, because we're going to win just, just by, just by being there. Like j- just, just by, by existing. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, the risk is like by fucking around with, um, you know, adding stuff and doing, doing all that sort of stuff is that, you know, we might impact or change Bitcoin in such a way that we're not there, you know, when the moment of like, uh, or, or the period of collapse, you know, really starts to occur. Like that would be a fucking tragedy. Like if, you know, yep. if Bitcoin doesn't change and doesn't do a single fucking thing different for the next 50 years. That is actually what's going to give people the faith in Bitcoin. That's the couple of generations that it needs. But if Bitcoin changes to such a degree, or we set the precedent that we can change it whenever we fucking want to, um, then we might actually have a real problem. You know, we might have gained a couple, you know, technical features which don't really matter much because once again, nobody's using the shit. Nobody actually cares. Um, but in, you know, in hindsight, what we'll have done is set a precedent for change, which then defeats the very purpose of Bitcoin's existence. And that's, it's very dangerous. That's such a good point because every day basically that goes by that Bitcoin stays the same and maintains itself and stays up, you know, and, and just builds more and more of a track record is actually a win and makes it sounder money and makes it more convincing mm-hmm. that it will, I guess every day, every year that goes by, makes it more likely it will exist in a year. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that actually makes complete sense. And yeah, I haven't thought, I hadn't thought about all the, the dev uh, wars or battles that happen uh, in that context, but I think that's so important because you're right. You might gain, you might gain something in the short term while kind of, you know, going back to Sun Tzu, like we, we've been kind of alluding to this whole time, you might win the battle and lose, lose the war basically totally. by, by totally. doing that. Yeah. Totally. Um, 
yeah, you don't need to compete with, you know, Ethereum or with some of the others uh, that are out there. You just need to do your thing. Yeah, that's it. And like, and, yeah. you know, like I always say, like Ethereum's number one use case is that it, you know, got all the idiots and tinkerers over onto Ethereum. Like, let them let them fuck around. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, it gives them a playground, and they can stay out of Bitcoin. That's it. Um, what? Um, so you were mentioning like the era that we live in, and I I want to spend a couple minutes on that because I, I do think to your point about how I, I felt this when I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole as well, you start realizing how much is actually downstream of money. And that's actually basically everything about civilization because it's our value. It's how we indicate value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, you see our era and there's a lot of obviously fucked up things um, that are around us and, you know, we don't have to go through each and every one, but I, I do think sometimes I, you know, and I, and this is like in my calmer days, there's plenty of days where I'm like angry and, and all riled up about it. But on my calmer days, I'm like, a lot of this is actually downstream of us fucking up the money mm-hmm. and, you know, people be, you know, not being educated or people, you know, focusing on the wrong things. And, you know, that's just kind of how it is. Do you see that changing in, let's say we have three generations in the future, Bitcoin wins how does that change the world in a non-monetary way, right? Like, so I'm talking like morals, values, uh, day-to-day life. Like, have you kind of thought that far ahead about yeah, what that yeah. changes? And I think some of it ties into Bushido. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, you can you kind of take it there too if you want. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, let, let's let's answer in two parts. So, so Bitcoin's effect um, comes in the form of uh, altering or improving time preference, right? So time preference is at the center of um of kind of how humans decide on their mode of behavior right so behavior is determined by time preference and and what that means is um and maybe for those who don't understand what time preference is maybe i'll preframe or preface that first time preference is the the difference in valuation between the present and the future right so how much do you value the present over the future okay um you'll never value the future more than the present because it's just not how things work like you know having food now is more than potentially having food in the future having ten dollars now is better than having potentially ten dollars in the future um so so the present is always more valuable what you then need to think about is like okay how much more valuable right and what's the relationship between the two so on one end of the spectrum you have i value the future zero and i'm completely in the present and that's like generally leads to some form of hedonism or nihilism or you know just pure you know current bliss you know people on heroin are very you know don't care about the future because they're in current bliss at the moment but they're not really functional members of society right um and then you know you have on the other end of the spectrum people who have like extraordinary fucking time preferences super long time frames etc and then they never actually experience anything today right so so but going both extremes is you know obviously not healthy now the thing is the 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 more you can value the future and the more you can delay gratification essentially um and the more you can lower your time preference um i.e increase uh, the value of the future in relation to the present. Um, the more you can sort of 
plan for and think about tomorrow, the more you can actually uh, optimize for cooperation, the more you can create certainty for tomorrow. And money plays into this big time because money is the thing that gives you optionality and certainty um, today for tomorrow, right? Like if you can store some money today, um, you can then acquire the goods you need for your survival or for your thriving uh, tomorrow or the day after. Um, if you can't do that, then you have to consume everything uh, today. And this is sort of, um, you know, t time preference is so integral to behavior that, you know, you could really trace all of the poor behavior or a lot of the majority of the poor behavior today back to uh, weak money, essentially, is, you know, money that incentivizes consumption or gambling, right? You know, that's the other big problem is that people, uh, you know, are in such a position that, you know, that the money is so worthless um, that they can't save for the future. So they have no optionality. So they, you know, and they're, and they're tired of potentially consuming so much that they're like, fuck it, I need to take big bets because that's the only way that I can create any sort of certainty in the future. So they take on massive uncertainty to get certainty um, and then they fuck up um, or, you know, maybe they don't fuck up and they think that, that's how you're supposed to win. And then all of society starts to skew and turn into a gambler society. And that's sort of, we have a bit of both. We have consumption and gambling. And um, and I think, you know, when people talk about Bitcoin fixes this, this is actually what they're talking about. Um, Seyfedean wrote a fantastic piece called Making Time Preference Low Again in um, in last year's edition of the Bitcoin Times. And, you know, people should pick up a copy of that because they'll, you know, they'll get his piece and everything else in there. But it's it's one of his, one of his best pieces. Like it's it's not written anywhere else. He wrote it just for this, and it digs into this idea of um, the relationship between behavior and Bitcoin uh, in in a deep way. And then second to that is, you know, what I tried to dig into in Bushido of Bitcoin, which was more a question of okay, Bitcoin really sets the foundation for it. So it's then how how do you then excel on a Bitcoin standard? What are the virtues that we must inculcate into um, ourselves? in order to excel on such a standard. And what I did was I looked at um, the warrior cultures over the last couple millennia. So everything from like the Spartans to the Thebans to the Macedonians to the um, to the Arthurian Knights to the Samurai, of course, you know, hence the name. And um and I and I and I dug into like what made these warrior cultures uh, great and strong because you know, warrior cultures are where the strongest virtues actually come from because they, they're, you know, in those environments are where you're kind of operating with the highest stakes, right? Like it's it's pure life or death. Um, you know, there's, there's no greater stakes like, you know, going to battle with, you know, your people, uh, you know, against other people and sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, blood, sweat, piss, shit, you know, right in front of you, like, they're different stakes um, than sort of what we what we understand uh, in the normal world. So, you know, surviving in that sort of um, environment requires, you know, really the, the the best possible virtues. So, anyway, I looked at that, and that that's sort of an addendum. But, you know, you if you only do that piece without fixing the money, you know, you you can get you can get a long way, but inevitably you'll be economically disadvantaged which is why the samurai, for example, were ultimately defeated, right, um, by, you know, the West. You'll, 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 if you lose that economic advantage, um, you know, you'll basically lose the battle. So if you think... So I'm actually not familiar with that history of that. Yeah, I was kind of curious, you know, how did their 
samurai society fall apart? Uh, the West, it? the West came yeah. and basically partnered with the merchants, um, and then you know kind of rugged the samurai, um, and mm. uh, feudalism overnight basically became illegal because the um, the emperor and the rising merchant class uh, partnered with the West, and basically swords and arrows were obviously not as powerful as uh, guns and cannons. Um, yep. And yeah, um, what was a very peaceful, orderly, structured society sort of got overturned. And, you know, within within a couple of generations, fucking Japan went from being this structural, structured, you know, orderly hierarchy into being, uh, you know, running fucking prisoner of war camps. Like the, the whole fucking thing inverted, you know. Um, it, it was, there's a whole fascinating thing there. But yeah, the, like you got to get the money right. And then you need to build the virtues and values on top of that. So you have a foundation um, because if you don't, you're just going to keep doing, you know, the hop cycle, right? Strong men, good times, good times, oh, yeah. weak men, bad times. And you're just going to keep doing that cycle. I think Bitcoin allows us an opportunity to short circuit that and build. Yeah, I, I, I do think kind of looking back on this era, maybe, you know, from our grandchildren's perspective, it will truly you know, kind of be more absurd than we even realize, like even people who think it's absurd already, you know, I think looking back will be considered even crazier that you could kind of change the unit of account, essentially on the whim of, you know, a council of a few people. Um, and, and then everyone else would be gambling their hard earned money on whether that, that small council is going to raise or lower interest rates. Like it's kind of crazy if you really step back and think about it. Yeah, dude, it's, it's insane. It's insane. People, you know, it's funny. People laugh at, um, you know, how the ancients used to have like shamans and everything like that, that would read the entrails of animals and sort of like, you know, make decisions and everything, bro. We haven't changed. <laughs> like we're, we're actually worse now because I'm not sure at all. <laughs> there was probably some sort of like heuristics around like, you know, astrology and, you know, omens and all that sort of stuff. Like there was probably something there. Whereas today, I guarantee you there's nothing going through the brains of like Yellen and Powell and stuff like that. They're just fucking, you know, getting together and like, oh, you know, let's do this today. Why not? Shooting from the hip. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's, I actually used to laugh a lot at like, I don't know, astrology and like people basing things on the moon and like all that. I used to think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer by background and I used to think, oh yeah, we're so much smarter than that now. But if you think about it, like the moon influences the tides of the oceans and oh, like, oh. you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a trivial thing, actually. If you, if you really kind of look at it, you're like, wow, okay, actually maybe there, maybe there was something there. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know enough about it to, to outright dismiss it. I should put it that way. Whereas I used to outright dismiss it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. Um, yeah, the shaman thing is so interesting. Um, so I also want to spend a little bit of time on uh, the Uncommunist man- Manifesto because I, I actually read it uh, as we were preparing for this uh, this episode. So you have a couple sections in there that I want to hit. I mean, it's a great book. I think anyone should read it. It's like uh, also very, very readable and very giftable. Um, I didn't realize like the size of the book when I had bought it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's like, you know, small book i don't i don't remember how many pages but it's not like you know you're not asking somebody to read a textbook so it's an easy book if you kind of want to give someone something and kind of uh start you know kind of giving them the 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 mind virus um that (laughs) of of not being a communist Um, but once one section i want to hit is uh why is marxism so attractive to people 
Um, you had a section in there about that. And I think, you know, I think that's an important one. So yeah, I guess maybe if you could talk through that, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, for sure. And, and appreciate the comments about the book. I think, you know, one of the things Mark and I really tried to do was um, take a bunch of complex ideas and sort of distill them down into three or four takeaways really. Um, and yeah, as you said, it's, it's, it's made to be readable and it's made to be giftable for, for, for precisely that reason, because, you know, th- these days, no, first of all, no one fucking reads. Um, and second of all, you know, the few people that, you know, do have the time and energy and, you know, desire to read, you know, they're not really going to read uh, War and Peace or fucking, uh, what, what do you call it, by Mises, um, human action, right? So we try to take all of that, distill it, and, you know, deliver it in something that's under 100 pages. And, and I think, yeah, I think we did a good job not to blow smoke up my own ass, but... <laughs> You know, if people want to grab it, like, you know, uncommon.com, and I think it's, um, I think it's useful. So to, to your point about like why Marx, um, or why Marxism is so attractive, like we, we battled with this, um, for a while and it just hit me as we were sort of writing the book. And I was like, you know what? Entropy, like entropy was my answer. And Mark, Mark was like, what do you mean? And I said, dude, it's, it's just easier to fucking bring things down than it is to build them up. Right. Like if, uh, you know, it's easy to beat someone um, in a race by tripping them over and then like walking past them than it is to really train for six months um, so that you can be stronger, fitter, faster than they are. Right. Like it's easy to like, instead of getting up and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right. And doing all of that, like it's easier to just um, tear others down. Um, so, so the, the, the very existence of entropy is sort of why I believe Marxism is, um, is so appealing because it makes an academic justification for basically being, you know, an entitled brat. Like that's really, if you, if you read the communist manifesto, that's essentially his position He's like these other people who we don't like, um, you know, because they have money and capital, we should take it from them um, and we should be the allocators of said money and capital. Uh, and that's it because they it, suck it, and we're better. It's also, Alex, I think the other thing that, I mean, is very related to your point about entropy and, and the entitled, entitled brats thing is for a philosophy that tries to uh, promote itself as being very selfless and, you know, kind of doing this for, for humanity and equality and all of these kind of so-called noble aims, um, it's actually a very ego-driven philosophy because you're essentially saying, I know better than all of you how to allocate this. Like we, you know, this other group Mm -hmm. doesn't know, we know better. And I think there's a real connection between like scientism and uh, communism. I don't mean science, right? I think like science is different, but scientism Mm -hmm. uh, and eugenics as well. I think eugenics is also very... Uh, kind of connected to a lot of these same ideas. Yeah, I mean, the, the scientism, for sure. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the, um, how do I put this? It's like, I don't know, what, let, let me say it this way. Like, during during sort of 2020, you know, in 2021 and 2022, you sort of really saw, um, you really saw that, you know, people who are sort of, you know, 
godless or you know atheist and all that sort of stuff um show their true colors it's like you know the, i don't believe in god but i believe in government right <laughs> and like you know people end up believing in something right. <laughs> um and yeah you you end up getting you know scientism and all this sort of like you, you can't replace um you can't replace faith i think in the human psychology you can't replace uh belief systems um and you know religions do a good job generally of like creating some sort of moral hierarchy of you know virtues and values that people can integrate and embed in their lives um you know and then that's just not the job of science it's not the job of uh you know being rational like science is concerned with uh the study of matter um and you know sort of religion and philosophy are concerned with the study of what matters right and they don't and they don't overlap very well because they're just two different realms um and trying to take primitives from one and apply it to the other, you know, doesn't work very well. And that's essentially what happened over the last couple of years is that you had these people devoid of, um, you know, a moral uh, hierarchy. They basically took science and turned it into scientism um, and created their own deities with fucking Fauci at the top or whatever. Bill Gates was their new God. Um, and they went and, you know, fucking jabbed themselves religiously you know, every couple of months to prove a point, like it's just fucking maddening. So anyway, I, I don't know yep. it's a bit of a tangent, but it's, um, yeah, just, just to your scientism point. Yep. Yeah. And I think the, another thing you touch on in the book, which is, uh, I think not talked about enough is you make the distinction between cronyism and capitalism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how, you know, a lot of the ills that are attributed to, capitalism are actually, you know, cronyism or, you know, the Kentalone effect taking shape, you know, kind of showing itself. Um, talk about that a little bit, because I think that's one of the, you know, it's like a common meme that you'll see, like on social media, it'll be, oh, look at, you know, late stage capitalism or whatever, right? And it's like, every single time one of those things is happening, it's really you're talking about cronyism, you know, when people mm -hmm. talk about like a congressperson making money off of their trades, and, you know, clearly not uh, doing things fully above board, uh, that's not capitalism. That's clearly cronyism. But I don't think people have the vocabulary. Like most people haven't heard that word cronyism. So maybe yeah. define that and uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like maybe first let's define capitalism, right? So what, what the hell is capitalism? So, well, first let's define what is capital. And, you know, capital, you basically have three base forms of capital. You've got time, you've got energy, and you've got natural resources. So that's sort of the base. And then you have some, you know, higher order capital, like ideas and reputation, um, you know, like uh, faith, maybe, you know, stuff like that, right? Um, so if you look at what capitalism is, it's the, you know, it's the effective and efficient use of the that capital, right? So using resources more efficiently and effectively, using time more efficiently and effectively, using energy more efficiently and effectively, like leveraging reputation, leveraging trust, faith, like all that sort of stuff. I, I don't fucking understand what's wrong with that. Like that is, that is very useful. And then, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of paradigm of capitalism, you know, to be able to use things more effectively and efficiently, you need to have uh, feedback mechanisms and feedback mechanisms are often, uh, you know, either positive or negative, and it's actually the negative feedback mechanisms that are the ones that actually induce change and adaptability, right? Now, what you've got in cronyism um, is the removal of the, the sort of the pain receptors or the negative feedback 
by virtue of just um, removing consequence from the system. And that, that's, that's very dangerous to the system as a whole when constituents within the system can get, uh, can basically play a game of heads I win, tails you lose, right? Like that's a fucking unfair game. And that's essentially what happens in cronyism. Cronyism is, you know, taking advantage of a, of, of a system through politics, right? And politics is not capitalism. Like, you know, capitalism is not political, right? Capitalism is just a process. And that's something we tried to really make clear in the book. Um, so cronyism is using the political apparatus to, uh, to basically privatize gain and socialize loss. And, and we've seen that so many times, as you said, like, you know, a, a politician of some sort, you know, creating some sort of, you know, whether it's regulatory moat um, or whether they, you know, do an Nancy Pelosi and, you know, make more money than every, than the Wall Street fund managers or wh whatever the fucking case is, that is a way of using political position or political power or something like that to gain an unfair advantage um, without you know, having suffered the consequence um, of making poor decisions, right? And, you know, cronyism is a sickness because what it does is it actually decays the society and then people who uh, are not so good at competing, they just give up because they very quickly realize that, you know what, the game is fucking rigged, I'm up and out, I'm out of here. Um, and they, they become basically uh, an ever-growing poor class that is completely dependent on the system. And then you have those who are smart enough to, you know, play the game and, you know, what they sort of realize is that, hey, the fucking game's rigged, so I may as well play fucking, I may as well cheat as well because everyone else is cheating. So then you end up getting, you know, the the upper echelon, the middle class, you know, become more rich because they um, they cheat. So, so they lose their own, uh, you know, moral validity. They sort of decay their own... Uh, view of themselves because they know they become they become scumbags and but you know they're richer and sort of you you basically erode the middle class um and you get a bunch of rich nihilistic assholes and you get a bunch of poor giver uppers um and you destroy you hollow out civilization and that that's kind of like the end state of cronyism and then we're seeing that firsthand that is fundamentally not capitalism capitalism implies that the the actor actually suffers the consequences for their decision making um and this is sort of this is not what we're seeing we're, we're missing that um and it's so important to de yep. delineate too no and we've seen it so many times i mean if you look at i mean banking is the most obvious example but even things like the vaccines and the you know the the pharma companies getting immunity for from lawsuits it's okay great if you know we're going to get all this money for these vaccines but if it doesn't do what what we promised or if it hurts people guess what you can't sue us mm -hmm. that's definitely not capitalism that's mm -hmm. uh, that's that's using your political power to uh, to change the rules um, so and you see that, I mean, it's not just in these industries. I mean, every, I, I, I think it actually has touched every industry and every, every large company, you know, employs a, a, a lot of lobbyists and it's probably some of the highest ROI activity that they can do today is mm -hmm. uh, just make sure that they have the right political connections and, you know, kind of can protect yourself from, from the losses, socialize the losses to your point and privatize all the gains. Absolutely. Um, so I know we're getting close to time here. Uh, would love to talk about Bitcoin times. Uh, you know, I know you've alluded to it a little bit here, but uh, in, in earlier parts of the episode, but just maybe talk a little bit about the project, 
you know, what you're doing with it, what's coming soon and, and uh, yeah, where people can find it. For sure. So, so yeah, so like really um, kind of an overview maybe for, for people to understand is I, I started this thing as a um, kind of, uh, I was giving a talk during the, the period when I was raising money for Amber and we had just sort of entered the blockchain space, right? Um, or maybe actually I'll rewind to, to right before that. So there was, um, there was a conference, a capital raising conference that I was going to and this was sort of 2017 and every dumb motherfucker in there was basically uh, spinning up a token, right? Like companies that had no business in anything to do with, you know, cryptocurrency or everything, they were just like spinning up tokens. And I was a, you know, crypto company at that point. Like I was still considering doing, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, but like we were still like fundamentally a Bitcoin company. Um, and I didn't want to do a token because I knew how scammy it was. So I got up on stage and gave this talk about how um, uh, the the AOL blockchains, what did I call it? Crypto's AOL moment or something like that, where, you know, basically it was all going to blow up. Um, and I remember like, I bifurcated the um, the audience. Like half the audience was like, "Oh my god, thank you so much! You're the first person who got on stage and like made sense." I was had no idea what the rest of these fucking idiots were getting up there and talking about tokens for. You just saved me a bunch of money. And then the other half was like, you know, exhibitors and everything, saying, "Do you know how much money you cost me, little motherfucker?" Um, and the organizer of the event was like, ropeable. He was so pissed off. He said at the end, he's like, "Look." you will never be invited to any more of our events in the future. Like, please don't come back. I was like, okay, go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, so anyway, a year passes and I get a sheepish email from him saying, Hey, you know, I know I told you all that stuff last year, but like, turns out you were right. You know, this is sort of after ICOs blew up. And he's like, um, we had so much good feedback from, um, you know, from your talk, people, you know, messages later asking if you're going to be talking this year. So look, we'd love you to come back and don't worry. There's no ICOs this time. Um, we're doing stuff that's real that adds, you know, you know, the, the, the classic saying, what, what is it on real world problems? We're solving real world problems. I was like, okay, cool. So they said, um, this year's event is a blockchain event. And I was like, Oh, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, yeah, all right, I'll come. And my talk unbeknownst to them was blockchain is dead. The future is on lightning. Um, and I remember him being in the back of the room and like, when I, like I told him when I, gave him uh the title of my talk i just told him you know how lightning will uh will transform blockchain so he was like oh that's cool um but then when i got on stage i was like by the way the real uh topic of the talk is blockchain is that the future is in lightning and his face just went white in the back of the room anyway i gave this talk um it's actually on youtube it's a, it's a good one um it's called uh yeah i think it's actually called blockchain is dead the future is on lightning um and it's a 30 minute talk and i basically just dismantled the the idea of blockchain um, and talked about how Bitcoin and Lightning um, are going to basically form the stack of the future. And um, and it was early days, man. There wasn't any wallet or Satoshi or Blue Wallet or any of that sort of stuff at the time. Like, you know, Lightning was still very much conceptual. Um, you know, there was a couple of early products, but, you know, I just, I sort of knew we were onto something. And, um, and I had so much content for that talk that we chucked it all in like a PDF handout that we gave out on the day and everyone fucking loved it. Um, so what I did was I turned that PDF then, you know, a couple of weeks later into a nice, properly edited, nicely designed PDF that um, I just posted up on Twitter. And that's kind of one of the early things that really landed me on the map, like Matt O'Dell and Marty Bent saw it, a couple other people saw it, and it did the rounds. And, you know, basically it was one of the, one of the cornerstone pieces that were Bitcoin, not blockchain, right? 
um, really early on. So then about a year later, I got together with, um, you know, Gigi, Breathe Love, you know, Nick Carter at the time before we went crazy, Dan Held, a couple other people. And we, um, <laughs> we uh, you know, I said, look, boys, let's, let's, I want to do this once a year um, and let's put together a series of essays uh, on a particular topic. So, you know, we did the sovereignty edition of the Bitcoin Times. Um, and then the year after I got Parker Lewis, um, Jeff Booth, Eric Kaysen, Giacomo Zucco and Jimmy Song. And we did uh, the um, the Promethean edition um, of the Bitcoin Times. And that was that was like the one that really sort of spread far and wide. It had six fantastic pieces in it. Um, it was like a, it was an inspirational like collection of essays. And that was 2020. It was done in Clown World. I wrote one of my best pieces, I think, Utopian Dystopias. Um, and yeah, that was like really profound. And then 2021, um, we did a new hope. Um, and that one, I didn't have time to sort of really promote, but that had, um, Alan Farrington, Thomas Strolight, uh, Brennan Quidham among a couple others, Peter Sinanji and stuff. And that one was like, you know, it kind of took a different tone than the previous year. The previous year was like a little bit angry about like clown world, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, last year was the first one that I did. That was a real, um, real thematic. So like it was, the Austrian edition, and it was looking at Bitcoin through an Austrian lens and looking at Austrian economics through a Bitcoin lens. And I got the best Austrian minds, you know, Seyfedin, Pierre, um, Conrad Graf, who was one of the early Austrian economists that picked up on Bitcoin's Austrian nature. Um, Rahim Tagizadegan, who's actually a student, direct student of uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe. Um, and oh, wow. Yeah, and Michael Goldstein. Um, yeah, Rahim is a fucking wealth of knowledge. His essay in there is fantastic. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we put that together and it's a beautiful piece. Um, and like I basically, I, I pay a designer a bunch of money to turn it into something absolutely gorgeous. And what I did last year for the first time was I took them. Uh, we, we created like this uh, iconic sort of uh, numbering system on the back where you've got the knight um, with a little number on it. And... You know, there's sort of copies from 1 of 2100, 2 of 2100, 3 of 2100, all the way to 21 of 2100, um, which means each edition comes with 2100 prints, and the prints are like actual collectibles, like they're fucking heavy. They're full-on 14-point covers, 100-pound um, in internal papers, like proper gloss. Like they're, they're, they're real collectibles that will last, you know, 100 years. And, um, and yeah, 2100 of each edition. I'm going to do 21 editions in total over 21 years. So we've got five editions. Um, three, four, and five are up for sale. One and two are being redesigned. Um, but yeah, you can pick them up for some sats um, at bitcointimes.io. And yeah, they're like each essay is unique to the Bitcoin Times, so you won't find it generally anywhere else. Um, some of the authors republish on their own stuff, like I know Parker Lewis republished on his Gradually Then Suddenly. Um, I think Goldstein republished on his Substack, but you know you're not going to find them printed or you know properly done anywhere else. Um, and that's essentially what these are. So yeah, I had you know launched it on um, Bitblock Boom last year, and everyone loved it. Like you know the 250 that I originally printed all sold out. So now I'm like in the I'm sort of we're up we're between 350 and 500 now, so we're we're selling those out um, before we print the next batch. Um, but yeah, it's uh that's what that is. Yeah, that's a fat that that's a fascinating project. And then is it just uh it, I'll put the link in the show notes, but BitcoinTimes.io. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah, I'll definitely put the link there. Uh, I'll link to your to your Twitter as well because that's always uh, I think you're a pretty fun follow and you do it seems like uh, do a lot of content on whether it's podcasts and you used to have a podcast as well which is still available to find if uh, people want to dig in there. I, I actually listened to a couple of the old episodes and and there's some interesting things in there too. Um, so I'll link to all of that. Yep in the in the show notes. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I ended up killing the podcast because I had too many things to do, but I finished off on a hundred episodes. So, yep, I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With with Bitcoin Times, the the thing that's really interesting about it is, you know, you, most people kind of treat media as uh, like a you know a short time preference thing, where mm-hmm. it's okay. I'm doing this this thing about you know current events, or I'm talking about you know what the Fed did yesterday, or. Uh, you know, this, this kind of discardable thing that might be useful for, for a few days, few weeks at most. Exactly. Um, and then you let go of it. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. Like it's, you know, if you look at the website, I talk about quality of quantity and a low time preference publication. Basically, that's the whole point of this thing is that I, I want people to, you know, when they buy this, they know that they're, you know, and it's, it's not cheap. Like each edition is roughly like 50 bucks. Right. But they're, they're an actual collectible um, that, you know, when you buy this, you're going to hand it down to your children and your children's children. Like they, they, and they're going to look back on it and be like, man, these motherfuckers were the pioneers, right? Of the first generation of Bitcoin. Like that, that's something special. Like that's something worth buying and spending some stats on. Yeah. It's one of those things where people will look back and, you know, say like, wow, I'm descent, you know, people, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I'm descended from one of the people who came mm-hmm. to in the U S you hear this, at least, you know, people who came to the U S on the Mayflower or whatever. It's like, okay. wow, that's, you know, freaking cool. So you know, this is like the equivalent of that in the Bitcoin really? space. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's it's that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm I, so I'll definitely link to that. Go check that out. Um, and yeah, I mean, just seeing like the contributors page, uh, the, the quality of people you have in the publication is you know top notch. Like it's just basically everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I didn't I didn't skimp on that shit. Like this year we're doing the energy edition, and Marty Ben's gonna highlight it. Um, and I haven't announced the others, uh, the other writers yet, but yeah, it, it's, yep. it's never going to be like, um, some no name or it's like so, someone who's actually made an impact. Um, so yeah, it's definitely the, the best names. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, Alex, thanks for coming on. Uh, this was so much fun. I think, uh, we'll have to do another one in the, in the future. Cause I think there's even just looking at my outline, we could go for another hour. So we should, we should plan on that maybe in a few months. Absolutely, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, you're a great host, and this was a, this was a good show. Yeah, thank, thanks, thanks for joining. It was uh, it was a lot of fun.